Leadership is the art of giving people a platform for spreading ideas that work. Welcome to DC Local Leaders, the podcast where we talk to C-suite leaders within the DC area. Our guests share their pathways to success and the important moments that impacted their careers. Lean in as we get the inside scoop on how they are shaping their industries, how they lead, manage, and connect with others. From the sectors of aerospace, defense, tech, IT, and more, this is Local Leaders. Your host has been making meaningful connections with industry leaders for over 15 years. Here's Philip Nathrum. Welcome back to the DC Local Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Nathrum, and thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Our guest is the Savan Group CEO and founder, Viral Majmadak. Viral's from the South. He was born and raised in Huntsville, Alabama. He moved around to multiple states within the South, but eventually found himself here to the Mid-Atlantic East Coast, attending grad school at Georgetown, where his professor told him, don't start a business. Not always what you would expect from a college professor in a business school environment, but he meant well. And Viral bet on himself. He did it anyway, and he talks about the nuances and how tough that actually is as an entrepreneur. I think any aspiring entrepreneur will definitely appreciate a real story of a real entrepreneur and what it's like, the ups and downs, and that it's not always great, but it's not always bad either. Be on the lookout for our new website. We are launching dclocalleaders.com as well as Shift Innovation Technologies. Shift Innovation Technologies will provide audiovisual services, voiceover services, and continue to provide speaking engagement and facilitation services like what we're doing with NVTC. As we all know, DC Local Leaders host Let's Talk Tech with NVTC. That is a video series that we're doing where we're talking to local companies that are all members of Northern Virginia Technology Council, but they're all very influential businesses in our area and just talking about some of the cool things that they're doing. Our most recent episode was with MIT and Accenture talking about their stress tests that they've developed for supply chain management. You can find more information on that either on our YouTube page or at nvtc.org. And again, thank you. Please continue to like and subscribe to all of our content. If you aren't already checking out Notecast, please check out Notecast. It's a veteran-owned company that started an app. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's a podcast listening app that allows you to take notes from the app, Notecast. There's a button right on the screen that says transcribe. So if you're driving when you're listening to this or you're otherwise preoccupied, you don't have to stop what you're doing. Just tap the screen. It'll make a note for you, both audio and transcribed written note that you can then text or email to yourself later on so you'll never forget. If it's a book recommendation, obviously it's going to be on our Mindset Makers page of our website, but you may want to keep that in your phone. You can just hit the button that says transcribe and keep that in your phone. So check that out. Uh, and without further ado, let's go ahead and get into the episode. It's so funny you say that. I was on a uh, virtual panel on Saturday. I do a lot of stuff at Georgetown, you know, went, got in business school, my MBA from there. And we were, um, they invited me back to speak to a group called Gamble, which is about helping minorities kind of excel. And um, it's so funny there are a lot of aspiring, you know, CEO types in there, obviously business school. And to your point, it was, it's, it was pretty clear that what they were seeking was not, here's the tactical plan to become a CEO. They were just seeking life lessons. Yeah. You know, that, you know, they would, they were, the moderator really was like, someone would go down the path of like, well, it's really important to have cadence and meetings. And, and, you know, it's like, no, that's not what we're asking about. You know, like, 
where did you struggle? What was your hustle like? Right. What did you fail at? Right. Uh, all kinds of stuff. So I actually, I know, thinking back to when I was in my 20s and I was trying to start this company, I wish people had been more real. You know, I wish I'd heard more people say, it sucks. It's hard. You'll probably cry several times. Uh, you know, because you didn't get that. People feel like they always got to be on, yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, I, I I try to take that approach all the time. I, I like to be a little more raw, a little more, more authentic um, and not, so scripted yeah the savant group yeah yeah how long have you guys been around let's talk a little bit about that real quick just yeah. because you're a relatively young guy yeah well right? and thank so, you i no, appreciate but, that i mean but you are but some but talk to us what is savant group what do you guys do how long you've been around yeah no thanks phil appreciate it i uh so i started the company back in 2006 and it's a little misleading i was in the second year of, my, of business school over at georgetown young guy late 20s had no idea what i was doing I had grown up, uh, my extended family's entrepreneurs. They're in different businesses. Uh, real estate is one of them, obviously, uh, being Indian, that sort of thing. Yeah. But, you know, I you know, I'd moved up to D.C. back when I was 21 years old, and I immediately got into sort of government consulting, working for some bigs. And so when I went through business school, there were two sort of common sort of factors that came together for me. I actually really enjoyed my time with some of the bigs and, and working within uh, agency walls and learning about how government operates. And then secondly, I had this entrepreneurial itch to scratch. And so my conclusion was, hey, I should try to start my own government consulting business. And so I just went into the deep end. Uh, but one of my favorite stories I tell now, wasn't at the time, was at the end of my uh, business school career, if you will, I went to one of my favorite professors and I told him, you know, everyone was deciding where to go, what what jobs to take. I had, you know, a few really nice offers on the table. And the safe bet would have definitely been to go with one of those, you know, firms in the industry. But I went to him and he's like, Vivira, what, what have you decided? And I said, you know, professor, I'm going to go out on my own. I'm going to start my own company. And he looks me straight in the face. And he's what kind of company? I said, well, you know, like government contracting, but let's call it consulting. It sounds sexier. <laughs> he looks at me, says, man, you're never going to make it. Mm, that's your professor talking. That's my professor. One of my favorite professors talking in business, in graduate in, level, in business. graduate level business school. Yeah. And that's I, counterintuitive, right? Cause you go to business school to learn how to do business. Right, 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 right. And you know, there's a moment he said that to me and, and really I was just sort of mixed emotions. A part of me was like, are you, did you really just tell me that? You know, I thought you would be all in, you know, but then there was a part of me where I, I really respected him and I thought maybe he knows something I don't. Am I making a mistake? Right. Yeah. You know, anyway, so fast forward, I decided to dive into it. And, uh, in 2007, after I graduated that May, I hit the ground running and just reached out to a bunch of my old former clients, folks that I'd worked with in the past. Uh, former colleagues from some of the big firms and just got got moving and I think you know one of the things that people either uh, don't really appreciate when they're starting a company is their risk profile mm. you have what does to, that mean like you have to assess your own risk profile and what I mean by that is you got to understand what you're willing to do and how much risk you're willing to take you know it isn't just about cash flow it is certainly wanting to know where you're gonna get how you pay, yeah. pay rent if you will but the other side of it is opportunity costs. So if you're in a mindset when you're starting a company or business or going down the path of an entrepreneurship uh, endeavor, you know, I'm sure a lot of very successful people do this, but also know, hey, I could go get this job that seems really cool and stable. Hey, I could guarantee that I get this paycheck. And you're, you're, that's part of your analysis that you're thinking through, what am I giving up? What's the opportunity cost? Right. And that can be really daunting. I mean, you know, in my case, I really did have some nice offers. And for me to say, you know what, I'm going to opt to not get a salary. You know, I'm not going to take this job. 
that's that's really challenging. So you got to understand that a lot of people aren't comfortable with that, and that's okay. But you got to understand your risk profile. How do you measure what your income potential is if you don't take the offer and start your own firm? Because that, I mean, you obviously know if they're paying you for a certain amount, that contract's yeah. worth at least five times more, or right. not more, right? right so right. you can at least do that quick math. Right. And you've been around the industry at that time long enough to see what the total value of the contracts are, and to maybe look at like some wraparound cost and what you think you'll be able to make as a margin. Yeah. So you're in business school. I'm assuming you can do this analysis, right? right? But you don't. That's not a guarantee. No. How do you know when you're doing the risk profile, right? That's part of the, but how do you, what's the other side of it? You know what you're going to make if you take yeah. this job. Yeah. How do you evaluate what the other side is or even put up a plan to try to make something come into fruition? Man, that's a great question. I mean, the short answer, I'm being honest, you don't know, right? You don't know, yeah. but you're willing to take the leap of faith. Um, you, you've got to have confidence. You've got to have trust in yourself. And to your point, it's a combination of sort of practicality and, and t- tangible calculation, Right. To your point, you've done the math. I was, I had previously been in the industry, so I knew what, you know, labor rates could look like or how much I could make off a contract of some type. But at the end of the day, you don't know for sure. Yeah. You know, it's, it's almost like a pro athlete. You're leaving guaranteed money on the table. Yeah. Uh, cause you want to go out and try something else. So, right. You're trying to start your own team. Yeah, exactly. When you can just go play for the wizards. Or <laughs> That's whatever. right. I don't know. Anybody wants to play for the wizards but, right course, now, but yeah. you know, um, one thing you said you moved up here. Where'd you come from? So I actually grew up in the South, uh, the majority of my life in Alabama, which tends to surprise people. Yeah. Because uh, the first thing they tell me is, I don't hear a Southern accent. Uh, well, we don't, yeah. Especially yeah. an Alabama one, because Alabama's very specific. Yeah, you know? yeah. So I grew up in a city in Alabama called Huntsville, okay. which uh, I always, the way I explain it to people is if you were blindfolded and flown into Huntsville and you know you take the blindfolds off, you probably wouldn't figure out you're in Alabama. A lot of uh, imported sort of uh, academic types. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of engineering science going on in that city. Uh, so it's, it's actually pretty, pretty cool place. Uh, and it's blown up in the last 15 years ever since I left, which (laughs) you were dragging it down. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but yeah, I grew up in Alabama, but moved around the South a lot when I was younger. Uh, so I mean, literally I'm a deep South product. I, I went to Texas, Louisiana, Tennessee, Georgia, and Alabama. Yeah. So it's about as Southern as you can get. Yeah. And it sounds like your dad, I, I think we talked a little bit before his spirit for entrepreneurship is a big part of why you had a spirit for entrepreneurship. Oh, right? it was great. Corey? It was great. I, in hindsight, it was probably one of my greatest lessons. You know, yeah. my dad was always an aspirational entrepreneur, uh, started a lot of businesses, um, you know, and in some cases he was successful, but in some he was. And, you know, I think when you're, when you're uh, living with someone like that, especially when it's one of your parents and you watch them go through the highs and lows of starting businesses, uh, it really, it really hits you. You watch the struggle, uh, you watch the hustle, um, and you learn a lot in that process, the toll it can take. And I was young, I was impressionable. I mean, when he was doing a lot of these things, I was probably, you know, early teens, teenager. Um, and so you, you learn a lot in that process. And I would say that to some degree, you know, being successful, knock on wood, or having having the fortune of being successful thus far with Savon Group, um, in many ways, it's almost like I was allowing him to live vicariously through me. I wanted yeah. him to see that kind of success. Yeah. But what do you think? So as a teenager, did you start any sort of side businesses or things that you can do? Like, did it, when you say it made an impression, was it that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like all of us. We, we cut lawns. Uh, I remember Buddy and I, we were 10 years old. We decided to start a car wash business and we went around like three, four blocks on our neighborhood and asked folks if they would like their car washed. And 
we were horrible at it. I feel like half the customers wanted their money back because we just didn't know what we were doing. But yeah, you do those little things. I think the lawn the lawnmower business, man, that's Alabama South. You know, summers it's hot, it's humid, and and taking a lawnmower, throwing it in the back of your trunk, and moving around cutting lawns, uh, <laughs> you learn a lot about hustle. Right. And I guess you learn about value too, because because it's hot, no one wants to do it. So there is a value in having someone else do it, and you're now taking filling that space. Yeah, you might not. I I don't know that I would have known that I was learning that lesson then, but well, I'll tell you the quick quick lesson I learned. You know, early on, uh, I don't know if you remember. I might be dating myself. There used to be this store called Blockbuster Music. Yeah. way back in the day. Well, Blockbuster Video. Blockbuster Video, but there was also Blockbuster Music. I don't know if you remember this, but... Blockbuster Music. Yeah, Blockbuster Music, very much like Blockbuster Video. But against the wall, they would have all these uh, uh, CDs, the top 10 artists, right? And you'd go and put your headphones on like we have now, and you'd listen to this music. But man, these CDs back... And we're talking like circa 1991, 92. These CDs were like, you know, 20 bucks. Yeah. Right? And I would buy those, you know, back in the day when, you know, my parents might give me a 20 here and there to go buy something. I didn't think much of it. You know, and then I'm out there cutting lawns, you know, $15 a pop, $20 a pop, whatever it might be. And then I'd go into Blockbuster Video. And my buddies would be like, oh, we should get this. We should get the CD. It's hot. It's hot. You know, I knew like three of the 12 songs on there. Right. And I'd be like, no, I'm not buying that CD. Yeah. It took me two and a half hours to cut that guy's lawn for 20 bucks. I'm not spending on some CD I don't want. But to your point, that's how you learn. You learn the value. Of, you learn of the value. Literally the value of a dollar. <laughs> I right. remember when our parents used to accuse us of not knowing the value of a dollar. <laughs> That's right. And it, and it was true. I don't know if people are still saying that to their kids today, but yeah. Yeah. CDs. I remember you'd scratch it like within 20 minutes of yeah. getting it. And then somehow, <laughs> you remember the headphones used to uh, always have that metal piece that would end up cut because it would fall off yeah. the side. Yeah. Because it was this little knob. It was a hazard. Yeah. And then you'd cut your ear trying to listen because like, you know, you only had the one. Yeah. Gosh, man, Man, I'm dating myself. This goes back to taping, uh, taping music on your. We used to be able to record the radio, so like when it was like the top seven (laughs) at seven or the top one at one, you didn't want to miss it. So like, and then you get like, because that was like your favorites. Because back then, the only way you'd be able to listen to your favorite song is when it happened to come on the radio. Oh yeah, man, kids just don't know right now. I, you remember, you'd hear a song and you run into your room. To turn it on, because that was the only time you were going to hear it. Right. And after the three minute and forty second song or yeah. whatever, you'd have to wait for them to play it again. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And then you'd hear some DJ talk for the first fifteen seconds into the song. Yeah, and it would annoy you, right? Casey Kasem or somebody <laughs> that's right. like that. Oh, that's good stuff. Um, yeah. So, but we never, you know what? We never actually got to exactly the Savant Group and what yeah. they do. Sorry, we got off on tangents. Yeah. So you know, Savant Group is uh, it's it's been a it's been a journey, and it's been a really positive journey for me. Today, the company's focused on, uh, you know, if I could just boil it down to one thing, we want to be on the front lines and are on the front lines of addressing data and information management challenges for our clients. If I could phrase it another way, you know, data information is currency and it's exploding. And a lot of these agencies and clients are struggling with data proliferation and what to do with their data. So our focus through our various services and capabilities and our folks really is about how do you find information? How do you organize it? How do you access it? How do you secure it? How do you leverage it to make better informed decisions, ultimately to help folks like you and me? And it's such a big part and a big challenge of what these agencies are facing. And we've tried to structure the company around addressing that challenge. So you're securing it as they are. Are you collecting it for them and, and securing it or just securing it? Yeah. Once we, they have it? It's a little, it's sort of the full life cycle, right? So the first thing we want to understand is what's available to them. 
I mean, agencies are dealing with that structured, unstructured data. Yeah, when you said clients, you so those are government agencies. Correct. That you're, do you do any commercial work? Like uh, we've got we've got a, a couple of academic uh, focused clients, but ninety percent of our portfolio, ninety five percent of our portfolio is is federal level agencies or institute. It sounds like institutions, so like yes. massive groups that have important data to secure, whether it's, I, I guess, I mean, the government, I can only imagine what that is. Yeah. But an institution, it's student files, yeah. um, research-related kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, research on. is a great example. I mean, we all know that the government sponsors and provides grants, right, for a ton of research. A lot of these agencies do, right? Yeah. You know, we have a client in particular who's been doing this for decades, and the reality is that there's not, there's a challenge in understanding what's been invested in and more importantly, what has been the ROI? So if the government's handing out grants and funding to pursue research endeavors, can we look back and say, hey, we gave out money to XYZ in 1985. What happened? Did we get our ROI on that? And equally as important is, if we're going to invest again in something similar, when did we do that last? And how successful was that? And what did we learn from that? Um, it's a challenge. And, and that's just one dimension. I mean, there's, there's a whole host of these types of things, particularly as, as, uh, you know, the, the time we're in now and the role of government and, and what they're trying to do to even bounce back from COVID, the yeah. investments you hear about on the news, uh, the management of this data and this information is going to get increasingly more important. Yeah. So let's go back to you being in, in grad school, um, having your business professor in grad school tell you not to start in business because it's not yeah. going to work out well, which is... By the way, I still keep up with him. <clears throat> no, I'm... Yeah. yeah. yeah right, we we like, have some good laughs over yeah. this. He is buys you, every time we go out. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably guilty. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I think his... his he Well-intentioned because he was like, you have a you have a win right here. Just go work for... I Pick a color. Deloitte, RSN, like whatever. Right. And you'll be fine. Like right. you have a graduate level degree from Georgia. Like you're going to be good. Yeah. Um, but here you are wanting to take the risk and do something even more and create something, it sounds like, because you had that entrepreneurial spirit. And I think I want to keep digging into a little bit more about what growing up in that environment of having a parent that's an entrepreneur did for you, because I hear a lot from other leaders that, well, like, so even my own parents, yeah. like they made an impression on me. I think we always talk about the way we speak to our children become their internal voice for good or for worse. Right. I was raised with a lot of shame and a lot of blame. And, um, but it was to motivate me to do better. You know, if you get an A minus, why not the A plus? Right. All I learned was I'm not good enough, even if I get an A, but like, you know, um, and I think no one gets out of childhood unscathed. I'm not criticizing my parents. They did the best they could and they did very well for me. And I appreciate that. Um, but as an adult, I had to dial back some of those things and really learn. And that's what set me on a course of like learning about mindset and then understanding that people like yourself have a certain mindset or have cultivated different changes in mindset. So that means that we can all kind of do that and aspire to do that. Yeah. Um, but how did you pick doing that as a service for the government? Like, how do you know, were you, was that what you were doing at the consulting firms when you were working? So you got good at it? Or did you see a hole in the market because of some research you did? Or did you have mentors that say, you know, we should really try to do Like, how do you know specifically I'm going to secure the data for government agencies when they're doing their research? Right, they're gonna, right, like, right. I don't even, I would, that wouldn't even occur to me. I'd yeah, no, that's a great question. I, it's a combination of things. You know, it's not some linear path that I took. Uh, I certainly, at the in my late 20s, wasn't thinking, oh, I know. I'm going to go help government right. agencies secure data and information. The reality is oftentimes in life, particularly in entrepreneurship, uh, you identify problems um, sort of inadvertently, right? 
You go to solve one problem and you realize, wait a minute, there's a bigger problem over here. And in my case, you know, I, my background, particularly as it relates to consulting, was all around strategy and management consulting and organizational development and change. And I'm not even a technologist by trade. Like, it's not something I learn educationally. Right. You're not a, you're, so you're not a coder. Or a I'm not a coder. Designer. No, none of that. And um, my first gig, my first project uh, with some of these big firms is I was put on a project to help manage uh, government agency assets uh, and data at a federal agency, a cabinet level federal agency. And through that process, I mean, when I say manage assets, I'm talking about like personal property. Back in the day, they had the Blackberries. Oh, you yeah. know, how, how do they make sure that those aren't you know lost? And how do they how do they track the data on those uh, Blackberries? Right. It was very new at the time. Yeah, smartphones having data on a right. device that you're walking around with yeah. is a new thing. Absolutely. Back in the day when we had Blackberries. Absolutely. And so one of the first projects I had was, to your point, you have all this sensitive data that's being stored and shared via Blackberry. And then you have government personnel either who leave agencies or go to a different agency or lose it. Right. Leave it in the car. Somewhere. Leave it in the car. How are you protecting it? Do you even know where it is? And so that kind of took me down this path of starting to realize that this was a thing. You know, this wasn't going to slow down. Right. This was only going to get bigger. And I went through that and we got into business school. There were a lot of topics and discussions around this in my strategy classes about how technology is changing the game in every industry. And so I just started thinking about this. And when I got in uh, and started my own company, I had some you know, projects early on that dealt with some of this at a very fundamental level, not the maturity of the things that we're doing now as a company. But it built the foundation for recognizing, wait a minute, this is a problem I want to solve uh, or at least help solve. And so as technology exploded and the use of data information became a bigger thing for a lot of these agencies, I decided to make a commitment to be focused on that. And we're talking about the whole life cycle, as I mentioned earlier. I mean, there's basic, you know, records management. Give you an example. Agencies spend a ton of money on storage cost, right? Storing records in yeah. huge warehouses. Paper records. Paper records. And now they're all converting to digital records. And that in itself is a process. Right. What do you do with all those boxes? What do you do with all those records? So that's you, fundamental. You have to physically scan them. You have to physically scan them. But then you add in layers of technology now that can help you. Uh, once they're scanned in, it's not enough. Right. You, you, want, you want technology to be able to read through those documents. Uh, you want to be able to do something with the data. Uh, sometimes you didn't even know you had data from back then. Yeah. And that could still be useful today. Like e-discovery, sort of like when yeah. you're going through litigations, like yeah. finding. FOIA. And then create, I guess creating the database to house it in, in the first place. How do you even look at it on a thing it was an excel spreadsheet probably not <laughs> right right and now you're maturing all those things right now you're getting an analytics now you're looking looking at the use of natural language processing to understand the information and data we're just in a different age now it's yeah. you're, you're you're in an era where technology ultimately is doing the the cognitive reasoning for you and uh, so you had no idea you were going to get into any of that when you no for so no <laughs> no idea uh, I still surprise myself every day when I'm, I'm, you know, and that's a thing. I'm not a technologist, but even if you are, the most important thing you can do in life is to continuously learn. Yeah. And I'm not talking about just professionally. Right, right. Right. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I'm a friend. I'm a son. You always have to evolve yeah. and you have to be open to that. I, I think oftentimes people, uh, I was just saying this the other day to someone, you have to embrace the idea of failure. That's 
hard on people. Is that so did you were you understanding that when you were doing that risk profile we were talking about earlier or is that something you learned along the way? No, hindsight's definitely 2020, yeah. but if I could impart wisdom on anyone, you know, I've failed way more than I've succeeded in life. What's so talk about those examples. Like I think what what helps at least for me are hard examples because it's probably something I'm either doing currently or have done recently yeah. that I either feel bad about or I'm thinking like maybe this is a sign that I'm not good enough. <laughs> like I, so I'm being 100% selfish with yeah. this question. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, look, I, there have been moments in my life and I, you know, be candid professionally and personally, right? I mean, look, we've all had relationships that have gone south, right? You know, oftentimes when we're younger, we kind of say, oh, good riddance. Or you're mad at the person for doing whatever they did, right? right? Like their fault, not mine, right. right? But the reality is even in those situations, there's something to learn about yourself, right. about what you may have done wrong or what you learned from it or how you were going to be a better person, a better boyfriend or whatever it is, how you react, how you, react, how you manage that. So I think there's personal uh, lessons uh, that you have to learn about, about yourself in those situations. You know, professionally, we've all been there. You know, we, you and I have talked previously about this. You try new things particularly if you're an entrepreneur, I've taken my company, I've pivoted several times. I've talked about, you know, different directions I want to take it in. And sometimes it's worked and sometimes it hasn't. Mm -hmm. And the most important thing I can do is learn from that yeah. and be better tomorrow yeah. than the next day. Um, but you have to embrace the idea of failure. So there's a guy, Jocko Willick, former military guy. Uh, now he does a lot of speaking. He does a lot of stuff. He wrote a book, uh, Extreme Ownership, and he talks about, so the military, a lot of people that are military that's been on the show have talked about adaptability. And what I hear you talking about is adaptability. Yeah. Uh, being able to pivot, trying something, going down a path, identifying that it's not the right path to be on and changing, pivoting, being okay with that, accepting that this isn't correct, not viewing it as I'm not enough to do to accomplish the goal that I'm trying to accomplish, yeah. but just that I need to make another direction or yeah. go in a different direction. How do you identify that for you? Like when, when these things aren't working, I know I'm on the wrong path and I need to pivot. What are those? Um, I don't even know what I'm asking you. Metrics. Yeah. How do you know? Yeah. I think it varies. I mean, obviously in business, Oftentimes, if you're not making money doing it, right, move, go to somewhere else. To be a company, else. you need to earn income, <laughs> right, right. That's kind right. of the, you have a client that pays you for a service. You're That's a right. That's right. So if you're not getting paid, you're not getting paid. It's not going well. Yeah, you probably need to pivot. Okay. Uh, but you know, I also put a lot of stock in people around me who I trust almost implicitly, who've been with me a long time, who know my character, but also are in their own right maybe experts or understand what's going on my, you know, it's important to rely on different perspectives to make an informed decision. I think it's oftentimes really risky to sort of have horse blinders on and just focus and make decisions based on your own assessment. It's really important to take the opinions of others and their thoughts. And I think that's one way I definitely have approached things at Savant Group. Uh, my leadership team will tell you probably to a fault. I like to solicit thoughts and opinions uh, because it I think elevates the thought process it elevates the solutioning when you can when you can do that so I, I do rely heavily on on people around me to help me figure out whether or not we're doing the right things and if not what do we where do we go from here and so you share openly with them without any fear of like what if they steal my idea or what if they're they think it's this uh, like I'm I'm a fool. Like, yeah, like I don't know what I'm yeah. doing. He's in charge, but we're going down. Well, they probably think I'm a fool anyway. Okay. But but <laughs> but you know, so there's something there's something really refreshing about that level of humility, right? 
it's it's really refreshing to hear and to say to folks, yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's right. And I think when you do that and you kind of drop your guard, people actually are much more receptive and more forthcoming mm-hmm. and don't feel threatened, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I like to approach things that way. I mean, the other way I know is I do a lot of networking. Yeah, uh, I talk to a lot of folks, um, whether it's in my industry because of what I do, um, but even just friends. Yeah, when I'm going through life stuff. Yeah, you, you ask know. for the advice. Ask whether for the it's advice, a mentor, or just someone else that's done what you've done. Hundred percent. There isn't a problem it. out there yeah. that that is new to you. I mean, it's new to you, but that hasn't been right. addressed or someone hasn't confronted. I mean, if it has a name, it's been done before. <laughs> right, right, like, right. Right. I mean, that's the thing, but that's part of humility, right? To wake up in the morning and tell yourself, no one's going through what I'm going through. That's just not true. People have been there. People have done that. So you got to, you got to seek those folks out and find out how they dealt with it. Right. And be vulnerable enough, be, be humble enough to be vulnerable with other people about the fact that you either don't know or that you're, you're concerned that you're going down a path that's incorrect. sounds like you're doing that both personally and professionally. And that's a learned behavior. Yeah, it's not easy. It's I a mean, muscle memory thing. So it's saying. a muscle memory thing, and it's you know, frankly, it's about dropping your ego. Yeah, right. The idea that you tell someone, "I don't think I did the right thing," yeah. or "I think I'm failing here," uh, it takes a lot of courage to be, to your point, that vulnerable. Yeah. But I found over time, as people get to know you, they really appreciate it. They're accepting. Yeah, it makes you real. That's how you build a connection with another person. Yeah, too, I think, um, like real relationships, yeah. not. Not sort of we're in this transactional sort of environment where like if you do this, then I'll do that. I just want to meet and have coffee with you. I have no real agenda, but I have a few questions that I'm hoping you'll be generous with your time. And same thing, like sounds like you're learning from the people within your company too. Yeah, and to your point, some of the most productive discussions we have are actually outside of the office. Yeah. Right. Is that, do you have that kind of culture? What, what's your, like if you had to pick a name for your company culture or something to describe it, what, do you, what did you try to create out of the Savant Group? Yeah, it's so funny you bring that up. We actually just had a, a sort of our internal discussions around culture. Um, I think first and foremost, we are by design an extremely transparent company. That was something that was really important to me. And so we share how the company performs on a quarterly basis to every employee in the company. We solicit input on initiatives. We give them updates on initiatives, whether they're going well or not. Um, if the company has a you know bad quarter, we're honest about that and what we're going to do. So transparency is a huge part of our culture. And I think that uh, bleeds through a culture um, in terms of how people interact. The second part of it is early on, we were just talking about this. We really had a clan mentality, which is great when you're sort of in a startup mentality. Yeah, Everyone's in it together. No one really has a title. You roll up your sleeves, you get what's done, you pick up the slack. And it's really great when you have a flat organization, right? But over time, as organizations scale and they get bigger, you realize that sort of clan mentality doesn't necessarily work. And so you have to transition out of that. And that's part of the inflection points I think companies go through is culture is important. I'm not sure that you can always maintain the same culture throughout the life of a company. That was interesting that you mentioned that you had to pivot the culture of the company to sort of match the growth of the company. Do you feel like you had to become a different person as a leader or just as a entrepreneur um, as you go through those inflection points? When you're starting up a company, you're an entrepreneur. At some point you have to become CEO. A CEO. Yeah. Is is that a different person? Oh my God. It's one of the most challenging journeys I've ever had to make, uh, you know, from, from entrepreneur to CEO. And I let me not kid anyone. It's not like I'm some fortune 500 CEO. But the reality is I'm a people person. 
I'm energized by people. So when I get in a room early on when we started Savant Group, I didn't care what your title was. I didn't care how long you'd been here. I just wanted to engage and wanted to get to know you. And what I found, and I would, you know, provide unsolicited thoughts on things. And as we got bigger and as we matured as a company, um, I realized pretty quickly through some mistakes that when a quote CEO speaks in a room, you carry a lot of weight, right? Because they're going to believe everything. Because you're going to believe everything you say, or they take it really seriously. So funny example, it was like a, fr- a couple of years ago. Uh, we, I was in a, you know, I was feeling little, well, I was having a good mood. I was in a good mood. It was a Friday weekend was rolling around and, uh, we had these sort of all hands kind of situations. All the employees were in the office and someone I think joked, half joked, I suppose, Hey, we should have like a a pet day or, you know, bring in pets, you know, your dog or whatever. You got a turtle, bring in a turtle, whatever. And I mean, I wasn't, I mean, I guess I was half joking, half serious, but I sort of, you know, ran out and thought to the bullpen. And I said, that's a great idea. We should do that. Let's have a pet day. That's fantastic. And, you know, left for the day. And I get this text later on that night from, from my CEO. And she says, did you just tell the company that we were going to have a pet day? You know, in my head, I'm thinking, well, you know, it's an old line, right? See what happened was, right, <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. But it was funny, it, you know, not to poke fun at that, but it's sort of an example of like, to me, I was just being virile. I was just out there like, ah, that's a great idea. As if I was just a normal colleague of everyone else's, I'm agreeing with you guys. This is great. But people walked away thinking, whoa, the CEO, he wants to have a pet day. Yeah. And there were emails going around saying, I've got a pet allergy. Well, that's I, my first <laughs> thought. It's like, it's- <laughs> well, and I didn't even think twice about it because I was just being virile. I wasn't being virile, the CEO. And so, you know, that's obviously a very sort of humorous example. But, you know, you learn quickly that when you speak up and you provide guidance or thoughts, people tend to take that very seriously. When do you know that that change is happening? Or what are some of the metrics and identifiers that, hey, is is it a annual revenue? Like, uh, I've been told maybe 20 million is, is around that mark, 15 to 20 million. Once you start doing that kind of revenue, you can no longer be like the startup sort of entrepreneurial flat company. You need to start putting processes in place and now go. And, and there's also another discussion in there is, am I the right person to be that? Right. right. And if that is true, what do I do? Do I, do I advance my skill set and become the next person or do I walk away and do it again and allow someone else to take that role? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's probably that number seems pretty reasonable to me, but I'm not sure that's sort of the decision point, right? I think for me, it was about recognizing when I could not have direct touch points with a lot of these employees, right? When back in the day, I mentioned being kind of a clan mentality. When I could reach out and talk to every employee because we were small enough to do that, people got to know me, right? And they knew when I was going to be serious or not, or I'm half joking or not. As you grow in scale, People see cameos of you, right? And you have to be careful what they see in those moments. Uh, because if if you only see Viral once a week or twice a month in a meeting, and he comes in and he's joking around, he's high-fiving people, and you know your impression is very different than perhaps what I maybe want you to have. You know, Maybe I do want to create an impression that we are well-organized, we're a well-oiled machine. When I come into a meeting, we want to make sure that we're you know, addressing whatever the agenda is at that point. So I think to your point, you know, 15, $20 million, you're definitely scaling and you've got a lot of folks between you and sort of the, the lowest end of the, the employee chain, if you will. Um, and I think that's when you realize I've got to pick and choose my moments uh, of, of 
when to be me uh, versus be CEO. Yeah, I mean, and, and I guess there's another consideration that a lot of the people that are in that room seeing you for the first time probably aren't a part of that core group or clan or the, right. the, the folks of the tribe that, that really started this startup company. Yeah. So that's actually one of their first interactions with you or first impressions. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I tell, I tell my um, leadership team all the time, 90% of my time, you know, give or take, is strictly with that inner circle. And so to your point, uh, when I step into a room with people outside of that immediate inner circle, I'm much more cognizant of the persona that I'm projecting, uh, the way I'm talking, the message I'm sending. And that's something that, again, you, you learn over time. What did you do to kind of work on that or gain that awareness? I mean, do you like how do you become that that person that you need to be now? And how, what are you doing to look at the next person? Or like, yeah, I think it's a combination of things. I mean, first and foremost, I think mentorship is really important, um, and and having folks you can go to to talk about your struggles and how you should address those and what you should be working on in terms of personal and professional development. I think that's a big, it's a big thing, and and for me, that's really important. The second is some of the things you just mentioned. You read books. You know, we talked earlier. There's not a problem out there that's not been addressed or talked about. And and books are a great way to to sort of fill that void, to understand how people have gone about it, uh, you know, in their own way. And that's been great. I mean, one of my one of my favorite books um, is Bob Iger's book, uh, Journey of a Lifetime, CEO of Disney. And he's got this fantastic kind of corporate uh, trajectory. But in there, he 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 sprinkles in all these amazing lessons about what it's like to be a CEO coming up through the ranks. And, you know, you read those things and you realize, yes, he is obviously the CEO of Disney. That's a big deal. And not to compare that that's, you know, somehow where I am, but, but the lessons are the lessons. And that's, that's a big thing. So I think mentorship is huge. Networking, talking to folks you trust, learning from what they've done, reading books is another thing. And then I think one thing I've learned is to sort of be really reflective over, you know, just taking time out for yourself and thinking through what you're going through. Um, I think COVID's really exposed and accelerated kind of the mental health, you know, piece of our life. And um, maybe it was the timing and maybe just coincidence, but I've really over the last year, year and a half, taken more time to sort of be by myself. Uh, and you can do that in different ways, right? You can go work out, go on a long run. Uh, I do meditate more now than I ever have. Um, or it's just sitting there, you know, and thinking about things. And I think it's it's really healthy to do that. I've come to certainly appreciate it. How do you find the time even, just the day's only 24 hours Right, long, right. Right, and yeah. you've got kids. I want to talk about your wife. I want to talk about your yeah. kids, how long you guys have been married, yeah. how you met, yeah. right, in the process of you starting a company at, what, 29? Yeah, 20, 27. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, um, first of all, you it has to be very purposeful. You have to carve out time. I mean, I put stuff in my calendar to say, this is my time. This is my personal time. So you're time blocking. You're you're making it a priority. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I I frequently will put time blocks out for a personal time. Now that personal time could be me just working out on my own. It could be me uh, going to meditate. It could be me just doing whatever I want, but knowing I have an hour uh, to myself to read or whatnot. So that's the first thing. I also think you know, family life, personal life. There's always every family you know has its own rhythm, right? Of where the day starts, when the day starts, when people go to sleep kind of thing. Um, and so my time, on some sometimes it's early morning when no one else is up. Um, what time do you get up? 
uh, morning routine. Boy, um, I'm usually up 6.30 to 7, um, not terribly early. We got a dog last summer, and uh, I somehow involuntarily signed up for morning walks with the dog. Of course. No yeah. Way. I mean, yeah. It's, you know, it's Dad's just going to do it. Don't right. Right. It. We had this whole thing with the kids doing it. Yeah. That lasted like a week. Right. Okay. But you know, the reality is I'll go on these walks in the morning with the puppy. And at first, don't get me wrong. There was a lot of animosity. How did yeah. I end up in this spot? Right? right. Particularly in the dead of winter. Right. But the truth is I have come to really appreciate that morning walk. You know, it allows me to clear my head. It allows me to think through my day. It allows me to even think about things that are on my mind that may not be related to work, uh, but just maybe other challenges I'm facing. So that to me is my time now. Uh, but I've really come to appreciate it. Um, I'm also, I stay up late. So, you know, when the kids are down and you can finally take a step back and breathe a little bit, um, I spend some time at night, uh, whether it's, you know, reading or uh, meditating or whatever it might be. Um, so I don't get a lot of sleep, but, All right. but that's a sacrifice you got to make somewhere. Yeah. So you're not, you're not particularly dialed into like a sleep pattern. You taking cold showers, you do this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Cause I want like, you know, I'm on them. I'm the worst sleeper. I mean, really like I, I'm a terrible sleeper. I don't know what's happened with age. Yeah. Uh, I've just chalked it up to that. But, um, but yeah, I don't, I don't sleep a ton. So I, I, I tend to get up earlier and I tend to go to bed later. Was that a part of starting the company? Was that? Was that, was that, is that related at all or is that just a, Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure my, yeah, there's no doubt. I'm sure that, that running the company is part of that, but I'm also, I think just by nature, someone who doesn't sleep a lot and a light sleeper. So it's the worst combination of two things. Yeah. What about your wife? Does she have her own personal time too? And you coordinate that with her? She's uh, so for her, she's an avid reader. Um, And I think that's her escape. You know, she reads every day, uh, which I don't do. Um, and I think she, she, that's her time away. She's also someone who really values, um, exercise and she will tell you it's also her outlet. So those are her, I mean, on a, almost on a daily basis, those are two things she does, which, you know, is fantastic on any given day. If you can have two moments of time where it's just to yourself. Um, so that's how she kind of escapes from the, the rigor and the, the day to day, if you will. Do you think her process of doing that wore off on you also to kind of help give oh, yeah. you a, a new idea? Yeah, she's, uh, we are about as, op- I mean, truly it's like opposites attract. You know, she's she's an attorney by trade. Okay. Uh, so, you know, both personally and by trade, she is, she is risk averse. Okay. And I'm a risk taker. It's a good thing we work that way because it would be catastrophic <laughs> if one, we were both risk takers or both risk averse. So I think she provides a level of balance for me that I desperately need. Did you meet her when before you started the company or after? No, I, I met her uh, before I started the company. I met her before I went to business school. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we met at a, uh, we, we met at a restaurant uh, just on a whim and okay. uh, and you know, the rest is history. So how'd that conversation go? Like, hey, I've got four <laughs> offers from this other company, but I'm going to go start this company that doesn't exist in a field that I'm not really sure exactly what it is yet. Yeah, it's great. It's a great question. Uh, it probably was more of a, a challenging conversation for me with her father. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, when I when I told my family that this is what I wanted to do, and I can understand if if you're about to, to marry someone and, you know, if it's your daughter, 
you're thinking, wait, what? You're going to do what? You're what? You're not going to have steady income. You're just going to go start something. But, you know, I was really fortunate, uh, both my wife and um, my father-in-law, uh, you know, they were, they were supportive. You know, once they, once they got past the sort of idea that I was just going to go do this, um, I think in hindsight, they would both tell you that it was absolutely the right move knowing me yeah. and, and kind of the way I, how I, how I sort of approach life. I don't think they'd have it any other way either. Did you have savings or money? Like, how did you start the company? <laughs> like, what, cause that's a part of it, funding, yeah. right? either raising capital yeah, or at least having one customer or yeah. one client to yeah. You know, you're asking me these questions. I'm thinking back to, to how, what it was like. And I'm thinking, man, that, that was some serious uh, naivete that I, that I went into. Yeah. It this. seems insane. Yeah. That like, it's yeah. like, I'm just going to go st- uh, like in what, I don't know. We'll figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's yeah. when you put it that way, you're right. Um, I did not, we, I was on loans, right? I was at business school, which isn't cheap, particularly Georgetown. Right. And so, um, my wife actually, when I met her was in law school. So we literally had no income. Two sets of grad school loans, probably. Two, yeah, we had we had loans, and uh, you know my money was coming from Uncle Sam with some interest attached to it. Right. So we did the best we could. We obviously, you know, friends and family, mostly family, helped us out when we needed it. Um, but eventually, as I got into my second year of business school, you know, my wife was able to land a job at a law firm, which you know, literally changed our life. Right. Because we probably couldn't sustain that much longer. And so once she had that job, um, we, we were able to give ourselves a little space, a little breathing room. And uh, and then, you know, I pressed forward on on starting the company. Did you start with venture capital or how did you like what was the process of like? So you had the idea. Right. Right. The right. Ideation. But right. what's what's that like for someone who wants to be there? Wh- what did you do next? Yeah. So, you know. I graduated in May of 2007, and by this time, as I mentioned, my wife was working, and I told myself that I was going to give myself to the end of that year to see if I could land a contract, and if I didn't, uh, or contract meaning, you know, uh, revenue generating work, and if I didn't, I was going to pivot. I was going to go somewhere else. So you set that up. You were going to adapt and and overcome. Oh, yeah, and I just, that summer, I remember thinking, you know, it came to June, July, August, nothing didn't get anything. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is how it ends. My six months of entrepreneurship comes to an end, screeching halt. And, uh, you know, there's a lesson here, I think. In late September, I had reached out to an old client of mine way back when from previous uh, employment with some of the bigs. She calls me up. She says, hey, are you still trying to do your own thing? I said, yes, ma'am, sure am. Why'd you come in and talk to me? So I went in and she sat me down. And she said, hey, look, I know you're new. I know you're starting new. Um, you know, I'm have to pull some strings, but but I like you. And I like when I when you worked with me and I could, you know, and this is her telling me this. You know, I liked your hustle, all those things. You know, I liked how dedicated and professional you were. Tell you what, if we can make it work, I'd like to give you a small project, right? I mean, you talk about a moment in your life you won't forget, right? Because you're thinking, this is it. I'm going to have to give up on my dreams. And, uh, so we, you know, I, I got that project. It was my first project. Uh, it went really well, and you know, things started to happen after then. But several months later, come to find out, after my project was ended with her, had ended with her, she passed away. Mm. And uh, one of the things I always tell folks when I have a chance to sit on panels or whatnot, talking about you know consulting and or entrepreneurship, 
is every person in life at some point has someone who is willing to take a leap of faith on you. And that's really important. And you don't know when it comes, but it does. And, you know, my philosophy even now as I've matured and had the opportunity to grow my company is to help others in that way, right? Leap of faith. That's why I'm, I'm involved at Georgetown. I was an EIR there. I still go back and help. Um, I still do some in informal mentorship myself. Everyone needs that at some point in life. And she was, she was that person for me. And I think that's an important lesson for people to understand and appreciate. Yeah. And I think what I heard in there is too, it, you didn't quit before the miracle happened, right? right. You, you stayed on the boat, yeah. right? You, you continued the path because you were only in that position to field that call from her to say, yes, I'm still pursuing an opportunity to do something on my own yeah. because you were still pursuing an opportunity to do something on your own. Correct. Right. You didn't quit too soon at the sign of adversity. And there was, I guess what I just heard was you had some sort of faith in the opportunities will come if I just keep building the skill set, working yeah. on the things that we're doing. Yeah. And going back to your earlier question, I had been around family and friends who I had seen work this hard and continue to push forward. Right. That's huge. That's huge. You right? can't be what you can't see. And you literally had examples that this is valuable. So it wasn't necessarily just a shot in the dark. You knew that it could work and that it had for other people. You had examples. Yeah. You, you have, there is a uh, healthy dose of resiliency that you have to have, particularly in entrepreneurship, because you will be told no way more than yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. you, if you have a win rate on proposals, of 30%, 40%, you're doing good things. Yeah. What that means is you're losing 60% of the time, <laughs> right? So you, when you talk about resiliency and having thick skin, um, we've become conditioned to that in our business. But yeah, early on, if you don't have resiliency, entrepreneurship's probably not made for you. Mm -hmm. But is that something you can build on and build that sort of hustle muscle that to become, to become adverse to hearing the word no and realizing that it doesn't mean we should close down shop. It just means we didn't win this one. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I think it's, it's a great question. You know, I, it does, right? I mean, it's, it's, you sort of become conditioned to it, right? And when I'm talking to some of my friends who are not in our industry, and if I was to throw out that statistic, <laughs> hey, man, I fail five to six out of ten times. Yeah. They would think, what, why are you even doing this? What, what are you crazy? Right. You know, talk to a surgeon and have them tell you they fail five out of 10 times. Yeah, you know? The other side of that is, Hey man, I only get 40% of my paychecks every year. Like, right. like if you worked a job and they paid you 40% of the time, yeah, like 40% of the, the weekly paychecks come through and the other 60, right. Come, right. You'd probably find another company. That's right. Yeah. I, I can't explain it to your, to your earlier question. I do think there is certain types of folks who, thrive in that sort of uh chase right am i gonna win am i not and and they really enjoy that i shout out to my wife she says it all the time about my industry in particular the highs are really high like when you win you're energized you're ready to go yeah. when you lose it's low because because you, you take it personally right yeah. especially when it's your own company like i wasn't good enough right someone else. right oh yeah to this day to this day so i it does i think take that type of person who's willing to has that risk profile, right? Who's willing to do those things. If you're, if you're steady Eddie and you don't do well in those situations, it's probably not for you. Yeah. 
Uh, and you see, you see that all the time in our industry. You see particularly young folks who come in uh, never having been in our industry and they'll go through the motions of a year or two in our environment and, you know, feel really defeated, right? Because they were part of a proposal that didn't win or part of three that didn't win and maybe won one. But for them, that that's not the type of career that they want to be a part of. And that's okay. Yeah. Totally okay. Yeah. Because uh, we need people who aren't like that. Right. Right. And if it's not your cup of tea, it's not your cup of tea. There are a lot of things. There are a lot of things that aren't my cup of tea. But but yeah, it's a, it's a tough industry if you're not able to manage the sort of highs and lows. But you can, but you do get, yeah, you just, it's part of the process. It you becomes, become conditioned. Yeah. Yeah. Does that affect you in your personal life too? Or are you that way in any other way? Like I, I happen to know that you do triathlons, right? Yeah. And there's a, so I think that there's something about that. There's plenty of other CEOs and CEO and the triathlon specifically seems to be something that's come up. Yeah. So I've done one. I don't want to overstate it. I've done one, but, but you train for one. So yeah. that's way more important to talk about really. Yeah. I yeah. think because the race is just the day of the race. Yeah. But it's what goes into that. That's right. It's it's a um I think pushing yourself is important, right? And I think it building that um level of commitment, uh whether it's triathlon, work, pursuing a project, relationships, recognizing that satisfaction does not come with instant gratification is important because I think even now, if you think generationally, right, there's all these yeah. like studies out there, which talk about we're in this like social media world and you want to see results right away. And cause we get them right. Cause we, we get, get them right away. Right. Yeah. Everything's at our fingertips, everything you possibly could want. And for me, I think I've learned the hard way in some cases that you got to really earn it. And when you do, boy, does it feel good. Right, it's the best feeling in the world. So I think when you build that stamina and you understand that's the type of investment it takes, whatever you're doing, triathlons or otherwise, you can apply those lessons to almost every aspect of your life. Being able to to accept the highs and lows of winning business and not winning business, and you've become very resilient to the word no and things not working out the first time or just getting back on the horse or getting back out there. Not everybody's like that. Does that cause any friction in your relationships? The fact that like if something doesn't work out, the other person may need to feel emotional about it. And you're just like, yeah, well, we'll just pivot and do something else. Or does it help you? Does it help you with your kids? Yeah. With whatever, like, you know, I particularly with with my kids, I think someone once told me the hardest thing about being a parent is that your natural tendency is want to protect them at all costs no matter what age they are, right? Even when they become adults. At the same time, your natural inclination is to let them out in the world and be successful. And oftentimes, that can be conflicting because in order for them to be successful, they have to fail. Right. And it's not, at times that means that you have to not always be there protecting them from all those things. And I think resiliency, the way I've gone through it, you know, my what it's done for me is I've recognized that I have to let them fail. That is really important for them. We talked earlier about sort of embracing the idea of failure and learning from it. And this comes down to even a difference. You know, my wife and I, we, she's, she's obviously risk averse and she's a mom and she wants to protect them. And if their feelings get hurt, she takes that personally. Right. And she wants to do something about it. I do too, by the way, I'm a good dad. I promise. Yeah, no, I hear you. but. But, when they're going through something, even at a young age, my kids are young, you know, you have to let them process that. You have to let them figure it out. And 
it's the best thing you can do for them. I think my occupation and how I've become conditioned to this has taught me how to be a better parent in that way. That failure is a part of life. It is a part of me and it needs to be a part of theirs. But what impact do you think that's having on your kids to see you in this type of industry, in this type of business, surrounded by technology, but going through the process of starting something and becoming a different version of yourself through the inflection points? I certainly, I'm sure it makes an impression. I, I can't say for sure that I've had a purposeful conversation about it, but they observe. Kids How old are, are they? Uh, they're 10 and 8. Um, but, you know, kids are, they don't get enough credit, right? Yeah. They're very observant. They're able to process things perhaps more than we realize, even emotion. And every kid's different, obviously, uh, but but I certainly think they're more mature oftentimes than we give them credit for. They certainly see that I'm busy, right? But what I've tried to be very cognizant of teaching them is balance is everything. And I was probably not that great at balance in life until I became a father. Because, boy, that changes things for you. You gain a completely different perspective on life. And so one of the things that I'm actually quite proud of is... I've tried to maintain some level of balance where the job doesn't define me in their eyes. So it could be little things, right? I'm, I usually close my day of work by 36 o'clock. I'm totally available as a dad and husband in the evenings or as a son with my parents. I tend not to work a lot on weekends. Obviously there are going to be weekends where that's necessary, but I try to be in the moment with them. And so my hope is, as they get older and whatever they decide to end up doing, whatever occupation they pursue, they recognize that whether, you know, your dad was a CEO, your mom was an attorney or whatever you do, balance is really important. Balance is what creates perspective. How far into the creation of the company were you when you had your first child? So my oldest was born in May of 2010. So I was about three years in. Where were you in the life cycle of the company and then having that new responsibility and that change? What did that do? Like, what, was that an inflection point where you had to figure out, do we keep going or do I stop and do something else? Or were you already at a point where you felt like, okay, this is okay. This is good timing. Yeah, no, I, I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, and I think when my son was born in 2010, that reality sort of slapped me in the face that this was no longer about me or even my wife at the time. This was now, there was a human here, right, that I had to figure out a game plan for, you know, and that that changes your mentality. It changes your philosophy, your perspective, and in some cases adds pressure. So I think, if anything, his birth with respect to the company was a catalyst for me, uh, or he served as a catalyst, which forced me to really, really become committed to what I wanted to do. There's no motivation, like no alternative, you know? Um, That's totally right. Well, yeah, man. But listen, this is, I feel like I can talk to you all afternoon. I appreciate it. And uh, I definitely want to have you back on because there's probably so much more that we haven't even uh, touched on or uncovered. And I want to continue to, my, the biggest joy out of any of this is that someone hears this and calls you and say, Hey, I heard you on the podcast. I'd like to meet with you and talk to you and get to know you better. Yeah. So I hope that happens for you. Thank you. That's and great. I appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you, man. This has been really enjoyable. Wish you the best of luck. I think it says a lot about how much interest you take in folks, and uh, it's quite flattering. So thank you for the opportunity. 
Thanks for listening to DC Local Leaders. We'd love to connect with you. Find us on LinkedIn and YouTube by searching DC Local Leaders, on Instagram at DC Local Leaders, or our website, dclocalleaders.com. You can find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever you find great podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. 